When police in Australia entered a house looking for a missing person, they were expecting to find some clues, but what they found was a dead body, skinned, and his meat served on dinner plates. This is the story of Catherine Knight. Welcome to Enter the Dark. Hello and welcome to Enter the Dark. I am Jan from Film Daddy. With me as always is Les from Tales from the Hangman. How's it going, Les? All good, man. All good. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. We've just launched the Andre Chikatilo video, so you can see time-lapse here. It's literally just gone, so we've just been sharing that on social media and stuff. And now we're recording. Efficiency. It is. Very efficient. We've only had one cup of tea as well. Yeah. Terrible host, aren't you? Try. I went out and got milk. I've got to go get milk on the way home. Remind me. I checked. I checked and everything. I'm like, we'll need milk. We'll have another brew. We'll have another brew later. Yeah, we will. Anyway, first of all, thank you to everyone who is joining us. And if you are new, hello, welcome. Come on in. We are the fathers of the sick fuck family. I'd the patriarchs. Well, I'm the father of the sick fuck family. You can be the brash stepfather. Yes. Who tells them. The quiet, solid type, aren't you? Yeah, quiet, solid type. Yeah. But welcome to the Sick Fuck family. Um, Come on in, make yourselves at home. Join us for another weird story. Now, this one is Catherine Knight. Now, Les, I think I might have found a woman for you, finally. Oh, really? Yeah, because going off your exes, you're like a woman who's a bit fucking crazy. A little bit, yeah, yeah. I, I prefer one who's calmer these days. Is that That's why you've not got a woman? Yeah. Your expectations are too high. I just want someone I can be weird with, Jan. That's all. Well, allow me to introduce you to Catherine Mary Knight. <laughs> she go, you can be freaky with her. <laughs> Let's crack on with this one. So, Catherine Mary Knight, she was born half an hour after her twin sister. Half so an hour. She's a twin. Yeah. At Tentfield Hospital in northwestern New South Wales on October the 24th, 1955. All right. She's a bit older lady for you. You like the older ladies? Yeah. Teach her a few things. Yeah. 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 But when she was born, her mum, Barbara, I am going to be doing Australian accents throughout this. Hold on. What's her estate like? We'll find out. All right. Right. I'm listening. But her mother, Barbara... Already had four boys, Patrick, Marin, Neville, and Barry, by a previous marriage, and another son, Charlie, with Catherine's father, Ken. 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 Another son, Shane, would follow in 1961. Not sure that is Australian. So much, or just I'm, really bad Cockney. I'm getting a bit of a Cockney vibe from that. Well, you know. Most Cockneys are criminals, and we sent criminals to Australia. So yeah. I'm going to roll with it. Makes sense. Just so, if anyone from Australia is listening, we don't think you're all criminals. No, of course not. Just the British ones who go there. Sheep shaggers, yeah, but not criminals. No, that's New Zealand. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I get them mixed up. New Zealand shag sheep and the hobbits. Sorry to anyone from New Zealand. Then we veiled racism aside. So I love Peter Jackson. I love, Pete. I love his earlier work. I like all his work. 
<laughs> I think he went a bit... I mean, I enjoyed Kong, but I think that story could have been told in less time. Yeah, but it's Peter Jackson now. If it's one of the three movies, you don't give a shit. Yeah. The insect bit was cool. Yeah, very good. Well done, Peter Jackson. We doth our caps to you, sir. But when Barbara's previous marriage broke up, the two older boys, Patrick and Madden, had stayed with their father, Jack Ruffin. He's Ruffin. You're Ruffin, is he? He's a Ruffin. <laughs> oh, you know, Jack, he's a Ruffin. And the two younger lads, Neville and Barry, went to live with their aunt in Sydney. Sydney? Sydney, aren't... Australia. Nice. Not the capital of Australia, as many people think. And people always get like that. Sydney or Melbourne, it's not, it's Canberra. Yeah. Yeah. See, I remember shit. Anyway, when Jack Ruffin died in 1958, Patrick and Martin went to live with their mother. Now, Catherine's father, Ken Knight, was an abattoir slaughterman who travelled with his family throughout Queensland and New South Wales, applying his trade in it. Great Australian place names here. You ready? Wallangara, Gunnedah, Tenterfield and Maury. And wherever work was to be found. I'm guessing there's a lot of work, a lot of slaughter work in Australia. Yeah, you know what I mean? There's cattle, there's good land everywhere. There there? Is, yeah, just yeah. Fucking shitloads of land. Same yeah. Wolf Creek. Yeah, they just take it off, you know, the native Australians, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Just go and take them in, you know. It's like the British, it's the British version of Christopher Columbus, isn't it really, Australia? Kind of, yeah, just yeah. Just go over, we're taking your land and subjugating you, fuck you. But, you know, we're going to keep your koala bears. I can't that film Nightingale. Have you ever seen that? No. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, anybody, this, this is just a shout out for this film. Not a horror movie. It's a bit of a period piece. But Jesus Christ, it is the most fucked up film you will ever see. It's, it's, it's vile. Is it, the, it's great, but it's... Is the boobs? There's rather the rapey scene. A rather harrowing, rapey scene. I don't know why I drew attention to that. But yeah, um, Nightingale, go watch it. Well, don't. You know, I'm not going to make you. Anyway, so Ken and Barbara and their six children eventually settled in Aberdeen. Not the Scottish one or the one in America, in Washington State, where Kirk Bain's from. But the one in Australia, because they can't think of their own place names. Yeah. New South Wales. Who wants to go to proper South Wales? True. I know we've got some Welsh people listening, so... Swans is all right. Eh, not as good as Rill, is it? Rill's horrible. Rill's fucking harrowing. It's not as bad as Murphy Titville. Fucking, Rill's worse than Chernobyl. That's how bad it is. But yeah, they settled in Aberdeen in 1969, and he found steady work in an abattoir there, so, you know, well done, yeah. Now, young Catherine, she was a loving little girl... And she was kind to animals. Yeah. And her only brush with the law was when she was 13. Be- appeared before the children's course. Um, it was a minor charge and she got a good behaviour bond. Now, they are basically... They say to you, right, as long as you stay out of trouble for three years, you're fine. It goes off. Some people have to be supervised. Some don't. But yeah, that's what a good behaviour bond is in Australia. All right. That's something I learned. Today I learned... What a good behaviour bundle. Every day is a school day. So, when she grew up, all that she wanted to do was work in the abattoirs. Bit weird. Well, she's been around them all her life, hasn't she? Oh, yeah. So, at 16, she joined her father, her twin sister, Joy, and her brother, Charlie, boning out carcasses at the abattoir. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know what boning means in an abattoir. 
However, <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> did a good bit of boning, did she? Yeah, she did. But as you can imagine, the abattoir, predominantly male environments. Yeah. Yeah. What's a boning? Sorry, but, we we are highbrow, yeah. in theory. Catherine adapted well to it, though, and quickly took part in the boning room banter. (laughs) 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 Now, she quickly made a name for herself, and she was renowned for not taking... She did. (laughs) I'm sorry. Carry on. Back in the room. Back in the room. Now, she was renowned for not taking a backward step in her work, and within that... You wrote this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. Behave. Sorry. I'm she works st- in a boning room, man. <laughs> Stop saying it, Jan. She boned all the animals. Chickens, cows, you name it, she'd bone it. She had a boning knife. She had a big boning knife. Not a bowie knife. A, a bon- boning knife. It was for boning. <laughs> Three hours later. (laughs) (laughs) And we're back. Kind of carry on now without you laughing. Giggling like a schoolgirl. I'll compose myself. I'll compose myself. Right. Carry on. Yeah, so. She was renowned for not taking a backward step in her work. And with a knife in her hand, she would challenge anyone who offended her to armed combat. Jesus Christ. So literally, he's going to be like, Hey, Catherine, you're not doing very good boning on that leg. And she's like, You fucking what? And then she's gone cockney. She's like, You what? Yes, Gallagher. Get outside. I've got a knife. You call that a knife? This is a knife. That's not a knife. That's a spoon. All right, all right, you win. <laughs> I see you've played knifey spoony before. But apparently nobody ever took her up on the offer because he was scared. Because she was that good with the knives. Carving stuff up like bones and things. So it was around this time that she got her prized possession. Do you know what that was? A a bigger boning knife. It was a set of razor-sharp boning knives, which she kept in pride of place above her bed. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm better than that. In 1973, she fell in love with a 22-year-old truck driver named David Kellett. And as soon as she turned 18, she moved in with him. And in 1974, they were married. Now, there was a rumour that Catherine attempted to strangle her husband on the wedding night when he wouldn't repeatedly make love to her. That's just choking, though. That's No, he was like, oh, blimey, I've spurted it all. I ain't a gazer. And then she's uh, like, nah, you gotta do it, you gulliver. You choked him. You gulliver? Yeah, you flaming galah. I want more sex, I do. Here's a tinny. We'll have a barbie after. (laughs) It's turned into Sweeney fucking Todd. Yeah. But as we get further in the story, you'll probably think, actually, I think that was true. Nice. So later in the marriage, he would work at the same abattoir as Catherine, but he was in charge of killing pigs. And she would drop down, just go and see him and watch him kill the pigs with the stun gun. It's something to do. It's something to do together, isn't it? Yeah. You know, some people do jigsaws, others ride bikes. She watches him kill pigs. 
Shortly after their first child, Melissa Ann was born in May 1976, Kellett was unable to cope with his wife's possessiveness and violent moody behaviour, and he took off with another woman. Did he? He what did. shit. Well, apparently she was quite violent to him. She does sound a bit violent. Mm. Deeply depressed and revengeful at her spouse's departure, and with no one there to take her grievances out on, Catherine Kellett chose the closest thing to her. Not her bony knives, but her daughter. All right. One day after he'd left, she walked down the local train tracks and left two-month-old Melissa in the middle of the tracks to be run over by the next train that came along. Fortunately, the infant was rescued by a man who was foraging nearby and he heard her crying. Don't know what he was foraging for. Probably koalas, big poisonous spiders. They give you uh, chlamydia, they do, don't they? Yeah, they do. Koalas. Koalas, uh, if they piss on you. I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's sort of making them infertile and killing them off, so not so funny. Thanks for bringing that down. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry sorry to make you sad. Man's just saved a child and you're there on about fucking koalas having the clap. Yes, I'm sorry to bring this down, this very happy subject of murderers (laughs) that we do. She hasn't murdered anyone yet. She's just boned a few things. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, later that same day, Catherine took an axe from the nearby backyard and swinging it wildly around her head, threatened at random to kill several people, including an old man. An old man? An old man. I've just got that image, like, from Texas Chainsaw. That's what I've got. Like, 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 <laughs> oh, God. I love that film. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I might <laughs> watch it later. Oh, no, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Oh, I'm the Lord of the Harvest. Bring, Bring it down. down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Fucking Dennis Hopper is amazing in that. Anyway, she was apprehended by the police and she was taken to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and she was released. So not St. Elmo's Fire. Though. No, not St. Elmo's Fire. A few days later, Catherine slashed the face of a woman she knew with a butcher's knife while demanding that she take her to Davy Callett in her car. Now, the woman, obviously, bleeding profusely, she only escaped when she pulled into a petrol station. The police responded to a frantic call from the petrol station owner when, obviously, you can see a woman bleeding in. Help, help! And they arrived to find Catherine holding a little boy in front of his shirt and waving a knife in the air. Shit. So she's got this little boy waving a knife. Now, in quite possibly one of the greatest ways to disarm somebody, the officers managed to drag the terrified child away by attacking Catherine with a couple of brooms that were handy and grabbed her when she dropped the knife and let the boy go. Oh, there's a woman with a knife! Quick! You got a broom? Yeah, here, let's let's broom her. Let's broom her. So they broomed her. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) on the recommendation of a local doctor, she was admitted to a Morissette Psychiatric Hospital for treatment and was detained under supervision while her baby daughter was placed in the care of her grandparents, Barbara and Ken Knight. What was the place called again? It was called Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. It's like rain on your wedding day, isn't it? No, it's spelt different. Oh. Ironic, isn't it? <laughs> so the police found David Kelly to notify him he's working as a truck driver still. And he said, they said to him, basically, your wife's locked up in a psychiatric ward under heavy sedation. And it's also the most notorious mental institution in the entire of the New South Wales. So 
he did what anyone would do. He grabbed his mum, Jane, and they drove hundreds of miles to be at his wife's side. I should, yeah. Well, you know, he's ran off with her, but he's like, oh, maybe I still love her, I do. Heart wants what the heart wants, I guess. Yeah, I went cockney again. Anyway, on August the 9th, 1976, she was released into the care of her mother-in-law on the condition that Jane see to it that she takes a medication. They collected Melissa along the way and Catherine and David were back living together in a rented bungalow in Woodridge in Queensland. Now, David drove trucks and Catherine took a boning jog at the Dinmore Meatworks in Ipswich. So, they're getting on quite fine. Yeah. You know, back together, she's taking the tablets. But the reunion didn't go too well. No. Catherine regularly flew into violent rages over nothing in particular, assaulting her husband with her fists, kitchen appliances, and basically anything else she could get her hands on. Doesn't say if she broomed him, though. She didn't learn that lesson. No. She's like, oh, what can I do? Oh, only a broom could take me down. Take this, Dave. But with all this kitchen appliance and brooming going on, on March the 6th, 1980, they had another daughter, Natasha Marie. Now, you see, she likes boning, as in both ways. Yeah. She likes boning animals with a knife. Not that way, sickos. And also she likes boning as in she loves the dick. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Anyway, one day in 1984, David Kellett came home and his prayers were answered because she was gone. He oh. came home one night from work and the house was bare. Literally gone. She'd packed up with her two daughters and everything that wasn't nailed down. She just took it and moved back to live with her parents on the farm outside of Aberdeen. So, you know, he's thinking, thank fuck for that. She went back working at the Aberdeen Abattoir and having resumed her maiden name, Catherine Knight, it didn't last long living with her parents, though. And she moved out with her children to a rented property in nearby Musselbrook. Musselbrook. Mm. A year later, her back gave out due to constantly bending over the carcasses at the abattoir, and she had to give up working altogether. Oh, I bet she didn't like that. Well, you know, boning's her life, isn't it? Yeah, boning really is her life. She loves the boning. She loves boning, and, you know, she can't do that. Bending over all that time from all that boning. I know. Oh, God, she must have been so tired and sore. Backs give out. She's like, oh, no more boning for me. I can't bend over. But I love the boning. I love the boning. Anyway, the government found her a house <laughs> in Aberdeen, which was suited because it was closer to the kids' school and they could walk instead of having to be driven. So that was nice. So she's got a nice house. So she's also got a pension coming in, so she's got nice. money. And the tall, thin, attractive, 30 years old, and all she needed was a man. Now, I don't agree with that because any young girls listening here, one, you don't need a man in your life to be happy. And two... Be independent. But if you want to find yourself a man, you find yourself a man. But don't feel pressured. Or a woman. Or or whatever you want to. Or let's just be gender neutral. Yeah. Anyone you you love, you find. Anyway, she had several um, relationships, but they were all unsuccessful. But then she clicked with somebody in a local hotel called Dave Saunders in 1986. Now, Saunders was 38 years old and he was a miner from nearby Scone or Scone. Is it Scone or Scone? What do you say? I say Scone. It's a Scone. I mean... It's Scone. It's, it's food. It's, it's Scone. It's, f- it's not. It's a place name. Aha, <laughs> dickhead. <laughs> and he was considered a good bloke by all those people who liked him. But his only problem was he liked to drink. And he spent most of his time getting wasted in the hotel. 
you know, and for all her bad points of such as attacking people with knives, fists, and kitchen appliances, she did have a cheery and charming exterior, and the handsome Saunders was smitten with her. Was he indeed? He was. And the fact that she had an insatiable sexual appetite was a cheeky bonus. Excellent. I mean, that's an attraction. If this is why I'm saying, you know, for you, you know, you know, you, you could be boning her all the time. There's, there's knives in the bedroom, Jan. Knives. That's going to get out of hand yeah. pretty quick. And I don't just mean with her. I mean, I'm talking. That's that's going to result in a gangs of New York level sort of situation. Possibly. I'm not saying that that's my kink, but it's my kink. But Leonardo DiCaprio? No. Anyway, things were perfect for a few months. And Dave Saunders kept his apartment at Scone and moved in with Catherine and her two daughters. Now, it didn't take long for Catherine to revert back to type, and she was constantly accusing Saunders of having affairs with other women. From then on, they were always at each other's throats. But then, she would throw Dave out of her house, and no sooner had he gone back to his place in Scone, than she would be knocking on his door, begging for forgiveness, and asking him to come back. Which he always did. Fool. But the heart, the heart wants what the heart needs. Or whatever that saying is. Heart wants what the heart wants. Yeah, there you go. So, it wasn't long before, though, the fights got violent, with Catherine, who was taller than Dave, attacking him with her fists and boots. Her fists and boots? Yeah, she put some boots on and attacked him with them. She's gone gone in windmilling, full-on windmilling. Yeah, like arms and legs. Like like some sort of, like, Autobot. Right, stop laughing because this bit gets harrowing now. Okay, okay. Game face. Okay. Animal lovers, I'm sorry. In May 1987, she let him know what would ever happen if he ever had an affair with another woman. And she picked up his two-month-old puppy by the throat and slit it from ear to ear with a bony knife. Jesus Christ. Before picking up a frying pan and beating Dave unconscious with it. Oh, well, that's the icing on the cake. What the fuck? Mm. But despite all of this and Catherine's continuing bizarre behaviour, which included a suicide attempt, Dave continued to stay with her and in June the following year, Catherine gave birth to her third child, a girl they named Sarah. With the arrival of a new baby, there was a nice bit of calm settled over the family. You know, so you've got the mother, you've got three girls now and you've got Dave as the sort of surrogate father. It was going well, so much so that Dave put a deposit on a tiny house in Aberdeen and Kath paid off in full when a workers' comp came through in 1989. So, mm. that's nice. She's got a nice house there. Yeah. So, considering that this was her, outside of her kids, and they're really nice bony knives, this was her, like, only possession that she'd had in her life, um, she's decorated it in the way she'd always dreamed. Nice. How was that? Dead animals all over the wall. That doesn't surprise me. The walls were covered with cow hides, water buffalo, steer horns, old-fashioned fur traps, cow and sheep skulls, and deer's antlers. Prominently displayed was a stuffed peacock and a baby deer. Now, you can see why I'm thinking you'd get on with it. you got a goat's skull downstairs. Yeah, I like the... Um, the edginess the, of it. No, I just like the way it looks. Um, that's, not, that's not that far away from my aesthetic, to be honest. I, I don't particularly like... That what am I saying? I quite, yeah, it's, it's my aesthetic, that is. Yeah. Among all the bric-a-brac adorning the walls and hanging from the rafters were a huge wooden fork and spoon. 
rusted animal traps, leather coats and motorcycle jackets, a rusted rake and pitchfork, a riding boot and crop and a saddle. Again, I'm not seeing her. And every available space that they had was filled with old newspapers, clothes and books. And they had a very extensive video collection dealt predominantly with horror and death. It sounds like a good place to hang out. It does. I'd have a beer there. Like, say that was a, a bar. Oh, yeah, yeah. You go around watch some horror films. Yeah, like they've got a good jukebox or something like that. You, you'd have a drink in there. I would. Leave in the comments if you'd have a drink in there. Yeah, not with her, obviously. Yeah. Because no one would drink with her. Quite a sound of that. That sounds like a nice place. There you go. Business well, idea for Yeah, you. business idea. We call it Deathies. Call it Catherine's. Catherine's. Hey! That's a good one. There you go. Anyway, it didn't last long, though, all this niceness. In the new bout of exchanges, Kath battered Dave over the head with an iron and allegedly stabbed him with a pair of scissors. And when he returned to the dead animal-covered love nest after a weakened scone, after a horrible fright, he found that all his clothes had been cut to shreds and taken to a rubbish tip. That's, that's controlling, that is. But this time, Dave, he's had enough. He took his long service leave from his mines and gave all of his old drinking haunts a miss. So he's just disappeared. Yeah. Now, Kath was frantic trying to find him, but she had no luck. His mates knew where he was, but they were like, no, we're not going to give him up. And she eventually, she just gave up. But months later, Dave returned to home to the McQueen Street to see his daughter, only to find that in his absence... Kath had gone to the local police and told them that she was terrified he would return and beat her and the children. What? She got the cops to issue an apprehended violence order against him to legally keep him away from her and the children. Fucking okay, hell. What a bitch. Mm. So, Kath's done that. He's away. She needs some fresh dick. And she started banging John Chillingworth, 43, who worked at the Aberdeen Meatworks. A few months into that relationship, guess what? She was pregnant. And a boy named Eric was born in 1991. But then, her erratic off again, on again, off again, on again style saw to it that their relationship only lasted three years. Which is, in my opinion, fucking amazing. It lasted that long. Yeah. And it ended acrimoniously when Kath Knight dumped Chillingworth for John Price. An Aberdeen local she had been having an affair with behind his back for some time. Now, John Price, everyone called him Pricey. Of course they did. Yeah. But John Chillingworth, that guy, he was distraught, but he turned out to be the luckiest bloke in the world. Because he would overcome his broken heart, apparently, and get off the booze and started doing something constructive with his life. So well done, John Chillingworth. Yeah, well done, John. What did he do? I don't know. But apparently he went on and did, like, constructive stuff, so he wasn't getting drunk all the time, just working in mines and meat places. He did something good. So well done, mate. Well done. Well done. Right, so, Pricey. Pricey. From all accounts, he was a terrific bloke. He'd give you his left arm if you needed it, and he was liked by everyone who knew him. He sounds like a good guy. He'd been married before, and he'd had three kids, and the marriage had broken up in 1988. His wife had taken the youngest, a two-year-old girl, when she left, and he ended up with a teenage boy and a girl to look after. He owned a three-bedroom brick bungalow on St Andrew's Street in Aberdeen, and brought home a good salary from working in the local mines. Basically, his family wanted for nothing. He looked after him well. Now, Pricey met Catherine at a local hotel in 1993, and they were both the same age, 38, and it wasn't long before they were an exclusive item. He went into the relationship with his eyes wide open. He did all of these rumours and how she treated men, but he was like, nah, 
I'm going to ignore them. But it's not true. Yeah, like, you know, we've all got a past of that kind of thing. But it started out good, you know. She was devoted and she'd cooked and sewed, picked up her man and drove him home from work and stuff like that. And when he was drunk at the pub, she'd go and pick him up and be like, oh, you, you're drunk again. Plus, she was really good in bed. You know, she loved it, so. Boning. He, he's, yeah, he's like, oh, you know, uh, I've got it good here. Now, his kids got along with her kids and life was great. You know, but it didn't take long for the cracks to show again. The accusations of infidelity, the fights, separations, and the inevitable getting back together. It's like Shakespearean drama. In late 1995, Kath moved in with Pricey at the family house on St. Andrew Street. And she seemed to settle, but the lack of dead animals surely must have upset her. Yeah, I reckon. You know, there's no newspapers everywhere and dead animals. Right, can I put this kangaroo on the wall? No. No. Take down that kangaroo penis. Anyway, the drinking escalated and so did the fighting. You know, they could be seen at each other's throats in the middle of the street, outside of their houses or anywhere where they drank. They'd get drunk, argue with each other. That's always a bit... It's not classy, that isn't, is it? No. Arguing in the street with your significant other. In 1998, Cathy Price's bosses at the mine... A videotape she had secretly recorded at home. And oh. you're thinking, sex? Uh, no. These are some items that Pricey had allegedly stolen from work. She maintained that she recorded the tape as revenge over a fight about his ongoing refusal to marry her. He just doesn't want to marry? Yeah. Let him be? Apparently they had come to blows and he had belted her. And she had planned on showing the tape to Pricey to use as blackmail against him. Oh. But... After another horrendous fight, she thought, fuck it, I'm going to go one step further and show your boss. Although the items on the tape were past their use-by date or considered to be rubbish and scavenged from the company tip, it was enough to get Pricey sat from the job that he'd been doing and loving for 17 years. That's vile. The same day, Pricey booted her from his home and she fled back to the tiny chamber of roadkill in McQueen Street. Chamber of roadkill? <laughs> I come up with so many names for it. Dead animal love nest. <laughs> so the story of her viciousness spread through the tiny town like a bushfire fanned by gale force winds. Given her track record, no one was surprised. Yeah. So Pricey took Kate Kath back a few months later, but he didn't move her back into the house. And now all his friends started leaving him. They were like, if you've got anything to do with that woman, mate, we're not having anything to do with her. And if she was around, they wouldn't come. Their fights resumed with the renewed venom. They would get drunk and argue over her getting him sucked from the mine. Then it was on for all to see. Even Helen Keller could see that they couldn't live with each other or without each other. <laughs> and that something awful was going to happen in just a matter of time. Ooh. Even Helen Keller. Even Helen Keller. And she was she couldn't see a lot. Or here. Oh yeah. Or yeah. speak. Yeah, she, yeah. She, <laughs> she wrote some books, though, didn't she? Who? Helen Kelly. She didn't write books. She did. Not getting them mixed up with Anne Frank. Or oh, I'm not doing clerks to you. No, Helen Keller wrote books. Really? She yeah. did? Yeah, H- Helen Keller wrote books. What about? Mm-hmm. Being blind and deaf. You know, bit shit, innit? Yeah. I don't reckon I'd read them. You know, she was blind and deaf, but, you know... She's I mean, f- respect to her. Yeah, she's more famous than me and you. For the she? time being. <laughs> 
The arguments escalated in violence and after a series of assaults on which included Catherine stabbing him in the chest with a knife during an argument in the kitchen... Oh my God, this woman! John Price went to Scone Magistrates Court and took out an apprehended violence order against Catherine Knight to keep her away from his house and hopefully out of his life once and for all. Yeah, I think... Yeah. But, AVO or not, there was no stopping his deranged lover. The same night as he'd taken out that AVO, John Price was in bed at 11 after visiting his neighbours when a vehicle pulled into his driveway and Kath entered the house. She watched TV for a few minutes, had a shower, and then joined Pricey in bed. They fucked. Oh, God. Pricey. Pricey boy, what are you doing? Well, you know, he's lying in bed asleep and she's like, Good day. I've just had a shower. I'm all clean. Wanna fuck? And he's like... Like, as horny a man as I am, I'd be like, you fucking knifed me. Get out of my bed, please. Victim, though, isn't he? Victim of domestic abuse. It's not as easy as that. True. This is true. So, this next is the police officer's report from what they found arriving at the house the next day. Right. Okay. So this is the police officer. About 6am on Wednesday, March 1st, a neighbour noticed that the victim, John Price, work utility truck was still at his home. They appeared unusual as the victim normally had left for work and each prior to this day this time. Worse what? <laughs> the neighbour came concerned, as did the employer of the victim, who was by this time making inquiries as to why the victim had not attended work. Attempts were made by another neighbour and another friend to wake the victim by knocking on his bedroom window. The neighbour and the friend went to the front door, where they saw a small amount of blood on the wooden exterior. Police were contacted and attended about 8am, and the police at the scene forced entry in the house through the back door. Upon entry... The- <laughs> upon entry the police located the victim's exterior layers of skin hanging from a hook in the doorway arch in the lounge room they located the victim's decapitated remains on the lounge room floor near a small foyer leading to the front door a further search of the house by police resulted in them locating Catherine Knight it was snoring loudly in a comatose condition on a double bed at the end of the house. She was removed from the house immediately by police. Don't know where the Saxon's going. I'm just getting This is brilliant. This is brilliant. I'm not laughing at what happened. I'm not. I'm not. Right. So the following account is the complete report by the crime scene investigator, Detective Senior Constable, Peter Anthony Muscio, who was the first officer into the premises after the initial discovery of John Price's body. So his job in this is to go in, write everything down, document everything before anyone touches anything whatsoever. (laughs) Are you finished? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. About 10am Wednesday the 1st of March 2000, in the company of Detective Sergeant Neil Raymond, I attended the premises at 84 St Andrew Street, Aberdeen, in relation to an alleged homicide. 
that I spoke to a number of police, including duty officer Graham Fairlonger, Detective Sergeant Bob Wells and Senior Constable Michael Prentice. The premises is a single-storey three-bedroom dwelling which faces generally south onto St Andrews Street. The premises was built towards the eastern side of the block, leaving a grassed area on the western side where three vehicles were parked. These vehicles consisted of a white Toyota four-wheel drive, a white Ford sedan and a white Toyota Land Cruiser utility. They fucking love the Toyotas. That wasn't in the report. There were two galvanised steel garden sheds in the rear yard, one at each rear corner. There was also a brick barbecue against the eastern boundary. The dwelling had a full-length veranda across the southern side and a smaller veranda to the central, to the rear of the premises. It's just fucking location, location, location or something. I was wondering that. I was wondering. I really was. There you go. <coughs> he's, he's stopped like his other job as an estate agent now. My attention was drawn to a piece of cooked meat on the rear lawn in front of the white Ford sedan. I made examination of this piece of meat and collected it for further testing. During my examination, I took a series of photographs of the premises and a piece of cooked meat on the lawn. I entered the premises to conduct a cursory examination with Detective Sergeant Raymond. I walked in and through the rear door and into the kitchen. Once inside the kitchen, I saw a large section of what appeared to be human skin hanging from the top architrave of the doorway leading into the lounge room. Architrave, really? He used that? I like how you find that's the most shocking thing. There are policemen who use the word architrave. This isn't my first rodeo, is it, Jan? It's not no one's first rodeo. Architrave is as shocking as anything. This piece of skin extended from the top of the doorway right to the floor and appeared to be an entire human skin. Looking through this doorway into the lounge room, I could see a headless and skinless human body. Yeah, she's fucking skinned him. Jesus. I walked east into the hallway and looked into the entry foyer and saw an extreme amount of blood pooled on the floor. There was also a large amount of blood smearing over the eastern wall of the entry. I walked further east along the hallway and noticed some blood staining leading to the main bedroom. In this bedroom I noticed more blood staining, however only in moderate amounts. I then left the scene and had a discussion with Sergeant Raymond and other investigating police outside the scene. I said, who lives in a house like this? (laughs) I then re-entered the premises and made more detailed examination. Like the size of the living room, what drapes they had. The rear door of the premises opens into the laundry. Off the western side of this is the kitchen and dining room. The laundry contained a stainless steel tub in the northeastern corner and a washing machine further south along the eastern wall. There was a built-in cupboard and two separate wooden love doors in the southern wall of the laundry. On the western wall of the laundry was a cavity sliding door that gave access to the dining room and kitchen. 
The two rooms were divided into two sections with the kitchen being the western end and the dining room being the eastern end which gave it some privacy and could be turned into an office if needed. No, that's not in there. (laughs) (laughs) The dining room contained a wooden steel dining room table which had three matching seats placed around it. There were items of clothing draped over the backs of each of the three chairs. On the dining room table was a tool bag, some clothing, a small blue folder, an electronic toy gorilla and some prescription medicine boxes. An electric toy gorilla? Yeah. I love how you like... Fucking... Archway? Gorilla? I noticed blood staining to the shoulder area of a blue shirt that was draped over a chair on the western side of the table. The medication on the table consisted of three boxes of Felidor ER 5mg, of which two were empty. This medication normally contains two strips of each containing 15 tablets. However, there was only one full strip containing 15 tablets. Oh, the plot thickens. There was also one empty box of Prinivil, 20 tablets. An empty box of Dapper Tabs was also on the table. Dapper Tabs? This medication, when full, contains 90 tablets at 2.5 milligrams. The fourth chair of the set was against the northern wall under the bench portion of the breakfast bar. I took a series of photographs of the dining room. The kitchen was in the east portion of the room. It consisted of a kitchen bench with overhead cupboards and along the eastern wall. About central to this bench was an electric cooktop, which had a baking dish and an aluminium boiler on it. Along the southern wall was a wall oven, and further east was a two-door built-in pantry with a freestanding fridge. Along the northern wall was another bench which incorporated a sink and further east was a breakfast bar that protruded from the northern wall south into the kitchen and divided the kitchen and dining room. (laughs) As I mentioned earlier, I saw what appeared to be a complete human skin or pelt hanging from the top architrave of the door separating the dining room and the lounge room. On closer examination, I could distinguish black curly hair at the top, a nose and part of the mouth and ear. About halfway down the pelt, I could see a clump of black short curly hair consistent with pubic hair. (laughs) I could not recognise any other particular features as it continued to the floor. The edges of the pelt were incised, indicating to me it had been removed with a sharp instrument. There were also a number of distinct stab wounds to the pelt, about a metre down from the top. The pelt was attached to the architrave by a stainless steel meat oak. The oak was pierced through the top of the earth's area of the pelt and then hooked over the architrave on the door room side of the door. The skin appeared to vary in thickness from approximately 1 to 4 centimetres. I noticed a blood trail leading from the lounge room into the kitchen towards the kitchen cooktop in the vicinity of the aluminium boiler. The boiler was on the right side rear element, which at the time was turned off. 
when I lifted the lid to the boiler, I noticed it was warm to touch. The pot was full of liquid, and on the surface I could identify a skinned human head and a number of cooked vegetables. On the northern side of the aluminium boiler, I saw a baking dish which was sitting across the right front side of the element. Inside the baking dish, I saw an amount of liquid and the remains of baked vegetables. Just to the right or northern side of the cooktop, I saw two prepared meals. Each of the meals consisted of two pieces cooked meat, baked potato, baked pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash and gravy. Under each of the meals was a torn section of catching paper with a name written on it. The word beaky was written on a blue ink pen on one of the pieces, while the other word Jonathan was on the other. The pieces of meat that appeared on the plates were similar to the piece I collected from the rear lawn. On the section of the kitchen bench across the northern wall, there was a number of items of interest. On the western end of the bench, I saw a grain electric jug with blood staining on the handle. In the sink, I saw an orange-coloured vegetable peeler and vegetable peelings from potato, pumpkin, zucchini and onion. On the eastern side of the sink, I saw a cream-coloured microwave dish containing cooked cabbage leaves and a clearish liquid. In front of the microwave dish, I saw a brown-coloured coffee cup sitting on a wooden cutting-up board. Inside the coffee cup was a teaspoon with a small quantity of thick brown liquid, similar to gravy. It was gravy. It was gravy? There was also a residue of gravy-type substance on the cutting-up board. Just to the right of the cutting-up board was a yellow-handed Swebo knife and two forks. The handle of the knife was blood-stained. On the eastern side of the breakfast bar, I saw a small black-handled knife, which was blood-stained at four empty medication blister packs. One blister pack was labelled Lovox and had 15 tablets missing. Two blister packets labelled Arapax and had 10 tablets missing from each packet and the blister packet labelled Promethazine had 20 tablets missing. I saw a blood-stained grey coffee cup which contained a white fatty substance. There were also an empty Tuhi's brand beer stabby, a packet of Winfield red cigarettes and a black wallet belonging to the deceased on the bench. A black what? Wallet. A wallet, okay. On the western side of the breakfast bar, I saw Norton brand bench stone sharpening tool. On the southern side of the cooktop, <laughs> on the bench against the western wall of the kitchen, was a microwave oven. In front of the microwave remains a roll of paper towel and a blue plastic lid. <laughs> this lid fitted on the microwave dish that was on the kitchen sink. I also noted that the microwave door was open and the courtesy light was on. <laughs> 
On the cork tile floor of the kitchen at the southwest corner of the kitchen bench, I saw a bloodstained bare footprint. The footprint was from a right foot of a person, and at the time the person was standing adjacent to the kitchen bench with the right foot facing north. I noticed blood staining to the fridge on both the handle of the door and the fridge section on the eastern side of the unit. The staining to the door handle contained some rich structure, which was in position consistent with opening the door with bloodied hands. There were also smears on the eastern face of the fridge and down and lower down staining from blood droplets that had come in contact with the surface. As I mentioned earlier, the lounge room was off the southern side of the kitchen slash dining room, the two rooms being separated by the cavity sliding door. On the eastern side of the lounge room was an opening 1.6 metres wide which gave access to the front entry of the premises. The lounge room contained a single seat lounge chair in the southeast corner and further west against that wall was a three seater lounge suite and another single lounge seat in the southwest corner. From this corner, north against the western wall was a slow combustion eater and another single lounge chair. Along the northern wall from the northwestern corner was a large wooden display cabinet, a smaller display cabinet, the doorway to the kitchen slash dining room, single lounge chair in the northeast corner. The skinless, headless body of a person now known to me as John Charles Price was in a supine position with his legs protruding into the entry foyer from knees down. There was a substantial amount of blood smeared over the carpet around the body. As I mentioned earlier, there was also extreme amount of blood pooling on the floor of the entry foyer. In this blood pool were staining with marks and the body of the street had been dragged about one metre from the middle of the entry foyer onto the carpet in the lounge room. The deceased was laying on his back with his legs crossed at the feet. The left ankle was on top of the right ankle. His left arm was extended and out from the body at an angle of about 45 degrees. Under the left drift of this arm was an empty plastic 1.25 litre Shelley's Club Lemonade squash bottle. The right arm was also extended lying alongside the body. On the floor adjacent to the right arm of the deceased was a blood-stained 31cm yellow plastic handled knife. The blade of this knife was about 17.5cm long. The body was virtually devoid of skin and flesh, exposing the muscles and some organs. There was a number of wounds present on the body, one being the most obvious stab wound to the left side of the chest, which extended into the chest cavity. As I stated earlier, the body had been skinned in a manner that leads me to believe that the person responsible would have had skill in this area. From the blood staining on the carpet, I was able to determine that the deceased had been skinned prior to being decapitated. There was a definite outline of the head in the blood staining on the carpet, 
Examination of the neck region in the deceased indicated that the head had been removed very carefully and cleanly with a sharp instrument. On the seat of the single lounge chair in the northeast corner of the room, adjacent to the shoulders of the deceased, was a black-handled honing steel sharpening stone and an open pack of Winfield Blue cigarettes. I also noted bl- bloodied handprints on the back and arms of this chair. On the northern wall on the western side of the door of the kitchen, there was a small display cabinet. Lying on the cabinet was a broken picture frame containing a picture of the deceased. Lying on top of the picture frame was a bloodstained watch. To the west of the photograph, still on top of the cabinet, was a bloodstained handwritten note together with another broken picture on top. Apart from the bloodstained, it had all small pieces of flesh on it. (coughs) The note was poorly written and contained basic spelling mistakes. It read... Time you got back, Jonathan, for rapping, raping my daughter, daughter. You to back for Ross, for little John. Now play with John's dick, John Price. These allegations are baseless. What the fuck? So, <clears throat> I think that was my best performance ever. Come on, everybody. Come on. So, if you didn't get that, um, she'd skinned him. All of his skin, all of his flesh was off. It was just exposed muscles and organs. They had no archetrave. So, it was evident to Detective Musio that Catherine Knight had murdered John Price. She'd skinned and decapitated him and cooked his head and served it and portions of his buttocks and the pieces of meat that were in the backyard. They were buttocks too. On plates for herself and his two children for dinner when they returned. Many buttocks did this guy have? Jesus Christ. Given that Price's son and daughter, um, the Beck and Little John that were mentioned in the note, were away from the house when the murder occurred, it hardly seemed likely they were going to be returning for a meal. Yeah. Because they were away. But, oh God, I've got to do the voice again. Detective Michaud also said, <clears throat> I remember walking down the hallway and being about shoulder height there were blood spatters on the marks of the walls. To me, it's indicative of each attack. He's absolutely fighting for the life. I'm not making this up. This is what the policeman said. The bloke's just had a bunk in the bed when he wakes up, then stab, stab, stab. He's getting up. There's arterial spitting on the robe in the bed and on the doorways there's a bloody handprint or swipe on the western side of the door near the dressing table and blood around the light switch. It looks like he's tried to turn the light switch on and then all down the hallway there are bloody handprints everywhere. He's almost made it to the open front door. The screen door is shut and there's blood staining. Trajectory again. Flicking out across the front door. He's almost made it. But he wouldn't have survived. He would have been absolutely horrified. Terrified. Probably terrified more than horrified. Trying to get out and being stabbed all the time. I like the way he made a distinction there between terrified yeah. and horrified. He's more terrified. <laughs> He'd be more terrified than horrified. Yeah. An autopsy revealed that the victim was dead when he was skinned. Thank fuck. Yeah. A razor-sharp knife had been inserted just under his collarbone and sliced horizontally across the top of his body from shoulder to shoulder. 
right under the clavicles. It was a straight clean cut and anatomically precise. Then the knife was turned and cut down the chest and over the stomach to the pubic hairline and made into a T with another straight line. Tracing the knife tip around the pubic area and careful not to cut his penis or genitals, the killer cut down the front of John Price's thighs over his knees to his feet. Then the killer moved up the body and held his arms up and cut down the back of each one and across the top of the victim's head. The killer then peeled the victim's skin off, including the head, his hair, his face, all the way down the length of the body to the feet exposing the victim's intestines. The entire skin was in one piece, including hair, face, ears, nose, mouth, genitals and complete stab holes and dripping in blood. Hanging from the S-hook in the doorway, the feet were dragging on the ground. The killer then removed the victim's head clean at the C3-C4 junction right at the top of the shoulders using a very sharp knife. The cut was precise and clean. The killer would have been covered in warm sticky blood. According to forensic pathologist Dr Timothy Lyons who performed the autopsy, the whole procedure would have taken round about 40 minutes. Wow. I mean she's got talent. But despite intensive questioning, Catherine Knight denied having any recollection of what happened that night after she'd arrived at the house and she'd had sex. Having recovered from her alleged suicide attempt a week later on March 6th, Catherine Knight was charged with John Price's murder at the special bedside sitting in Maitland District Hospital Psychiatric Wing. In a bizarre twist, it was discovered that after she had allegedly murdered her lover, she had gone into Aberdeen and withdrawn $1,000 from John Price's bank account from an automatic teller. At her trial in October 2001, Catherine Knight saved John Price's distraught family the ordeal of having to hear all the evidence by pleading guilty. According to the court-appointed psychiatrists, she was perfectly sane when she committed the crimes. Right. On November the 8th, Justice Barry O'Keefe sentenced Catherine Mary Knight to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. The judge said that her papers were to be marked never to be released. She has since appealed the severity of the sentence. So... It's kind of open to debate whether or not she ate parts of her lover after she cooked his head and slice and slices from his buttocks. It's hard to say if all the pieces of John Price are accounted for, and to this day she she can't recall any of that night. The last thing she can remember is good sex, and they both climaxed. Then she remembers that Price had got out of bed for go for a pee. She watched him come back into the bedroom. After that, she presumes that she fell asleep and that was that. Right, okay. The general consensus of opinion, which is everyone, yeah, everyone ever, is that she ate part of John Price and found that what she did was so fucking abhorrent, she chose to block it out from her mind. And that's why she's got repressed memories. So, at the moment, she is in Mullawa Women's Correctional Centre. She works as a cleaner in the governor's office. And although she's a good cook... Then not really going to let her into the kitchen, I don't think. No, I don't think so. So, yeah. Catherine Knight, what do you think, Les? Yeah, it's a no from me. It's a no from you? Yeah. Why? She's good in bed. She likes a drink. She decorate the house the way you like it. Big wanna be the skinning and not remembering things. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to eat your buttocks. I'm your best friend. No. No. Well. It's a strange one, wasn't it? Skinning a man. In, in in a lot of ways, I'd say this is our strangest episode. Uh, is that just because of the accent? It, 
It's a bit to do with the accent. Yeah. I like him, though, because he was very precise. He was very precise. Yeah. And On the northern side <laughs> of the wall. I mean, yeah, he, he painted a vivid picture of... You um, could... You were like, North... Right, so that chair said... You, you know what I mean? I visualised it. I visualised all of it, including the hanging skin. Yeah. But when I was visualising it, I was visualising it as like the house from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it wasn't. It was a nice house. It was a nice house. She just put up a skin curtain. Yeah. She was like, you won't let me have animals on the wall? I'll bloody put your pelt on the wall. I will, Pricey. And she did. But yeah, that was Catherine Knight. She was fucked in the head. We should write to her. Yeah, okay. Because we keep thinking about writing to serial killers. Um, but we should. We're going. Well, you won't write to Rose West, don't you? Because you love Rose. I don't love her. I, you, I My love Rose her. has left me. I don't love Rose West. I just or admire her. What on earth? My head's battered now. <laughs> Maybe you should go sit in the southwest corner on the chair. <laughs> but guys, what do you think? Do you think she was oh. insane? Do you think she did it? Could someone else have done it and framed it? I mean, possibly. That is I, a possibility. It's a possibility. But it's... everything clicks together yeah. to wild on it. Yeah, but do you think she was crazy? Do you think it was some sort of... They said she was sane? Do you think she was insane? Please let us know. Don't forget to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, give us an email at enterthedarkpodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you think there, guys. Um, also, we have got a Patreon now, so if you do want to... Throw a few shackles our way. Yeah, if you do want to, you know, buy us a slice of meat, um, you can do that. We've got a video for that. If you go to patreon.com slash enterthedark, all one word, um, you can see the tiers there for you. Um, you'll get shout outs on the show in the end credits and you can also even suggest episodes to us and we will do them we will do them for you because you know you've paid for it so yeah but check out the patreon guys but only give if you can afford to do so don't skint yourselves for it please as we always say we're not doing that we're not asking you for money for us to quit and not having to do any hard work we just, if you want to support us, that's the best way you can do so. So please, if this is your first time, please subscribe to the channel. If you, you're a regular sick fuck, thank you for coming again. I've been Jan from Film Daddy. He's been Les from Tales from the Hangman. Mm-hmm. And we shall see you in the southwest corner of the chair. See you later, folks. See you later, mate. Jesus fucking Christ. Uh...